Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. He'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. Mm-hmm. Most of the ensemble there in that short clip from James Gray's new film, Armageddon Time, Anthony Hopkins, Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and young actor Banks Rapetta. The film has Gray looking back on his own childhood for inspiration. We've got a review of Armageddon Time, which is in select cities now and expands next weekend. Plus, thoughts on a slew of new and recent releases. We're going to hit Triangle of Sadness, Wendell and Wilde, and Jennifer Lawrence in Causeway. That and more. Adam, you can be a film critic when you grow up. Nothing's going to stop you. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. There's a lot to get to on this show, Josh, including a nomination for our Golden Brick Award. That, of course, goes to an under-the-radar film from a new or emerging director. You've been doing most of the heavy lifting. In fact, maybe all of the heavy lifting on the Brick front this year. I felt like it was time I chipped in. I've got one new film to nominate, as I said. But, yeah, I went on a bit of a binge this weekend, and we might just fit in every title. I love it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna pack them in. Another brick nom is great. We're gonna have an impressive brick lineup this year, I think. I hope so. Along with that brick contender, we'll have some thoughts on stop motion master Henry Selleck's new collaboration with Jordan Peele, Wendell and Wilde. You saw that one, Josh. I caught up with Jennifer Lawrence in the new drama Causeway, and we both finally have a few thoughts on Palm Door winning Triangle of Sadness. But first, our review of a semi-autobiographical story set in 1980 Queens, Armageddon Time. My parents are sending me to my brother's school. That's heavy. In this institution, you can be anything you want to be. It won't be because of a handout. It'll be because you earned your way there. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. Who's that? Somebody from my old school. Did they ever come to your house? What do you do when that happens? Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? Between the two of us, Adam, we're almost James Gray completists. We both have yet to catch up with the writer-director's 1994 debut, Little Odessa. But other than that, you've only missed The Yards, and I've only missed Two Lovers. His last three films, The Immigrant, The Lost City of Z and Ad Astra have all been reviewed by at least one of us on the show. Film spotting family members who subscribe to our archive feed can listen to those reviews on episodes 494, 632, and 746. With all of that under our belts, we now have Gray's Armageddon Time. His entry in the, I'm going to give this a try, autography genre. You know, think Alfonso Cuaron's Roma and Steven Spielberg's upcoming The Fablemans. Did it's you Queens. coin that, Josh? 
Can you take credit for that? I mean, is that I have your to do a Google search girl? before I file the paperwork, but for now, sure. Okay. We've got Queens, New York here, circa 1980, and the gray stand-in is Paul, played by Banks Rapetta, a smart but rebellious 11-year-old who has artistic ambitions but little patience for school. Paul enjoys slash endures a busy multi-generational family life. Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong play his parents. Anthony Hopkins plays his grandfather. And he strikes up a new friendship with an African-American kid in his class, played by Jalen Webb, which opens his eyes to distinctions of class and race. Armageddon Time seems a good point to take a step back and consider where we're at with Gray Adam. His movies are almost always well-reviewed. He's been a multiple nominee at Cannes over the years, but as producer Sam noted in this week's newsletter for Film Spotting Family Members, never nominated for an Oscar, despite a filmography of Oscar-friendly material. To unfairly reduce things, would you say Gray's work is underrated, overrated, or properly rated? And do you think Armageddon Time is going to mark a shift in the film world's perception of him? I don't anticipate a shift, no, which I mean neither positively nor negatively. I think James Gray is properly rated in my experience with his movies. And as you noted, I do have a couple blind spots. I've been really disappointed. The Immigrant and We Own the Night come to mind. And I've been really moved. Two Lovers, Ad Astra, of course, Josh, my number six film of 2019. I loved that film. But if I was applying the movie theater test, We've sometimes applied when we're doing previews for the movie year or a certain season, and you're in the multiplex, and there's just rows and rows of theaters with the sign outside, and you don't know anything about the movies playing inside those theaters. All you have is the director's name outside of it to go off of. Let's say maybe take 50 currently working directors, and I didn't actually make a list, so don't hold me to this. I'd walk into at least 25 other movies, maybe 30, before I walked into Gray's. But I'd also know that if I did walk into the theater, Mark Gray, I'd be in for something thoughtful and thoughtfully crafted. And it wouldn't be safe either. You mentioned Sam's question and material that seems Oscar-worthy. I can actually also make cases for a lot of it being a little bit too challenging for Oscar voters. I don't think it's a case where Gray, where he isn't interested in challenging his audience. I think he is and can be a very bold filmmaker. And I don't think there's anything safe about Armageddon Time, which is a movie that even if I had no idea going in that it was autobiographical and I had no idea who the filmmaker was, I think we'd still know somehow from watching it that it's personal. Sure. Because of its period setting. And because the protagonist is precocious and proclaims that he wants to be an artist. So right away, we sort of know or imagine that he's a stand-in. But we do know going in, it's autobiographical, whether we sought out that information or not. I certainly picked up on it. And I think if Gray wanted to play it safe, here's where I'm going to go with this, Josh. If Gray wanted to play it safe, he would have never made a movie in the year 2022 that's about a white man processing his childhood guilt and who you could say in the simplest terms did something wrong. Even if the version of himself who did it was a young kid who wasn't in control of much of anything, 
this is a story you could absolutely keep to yourself. <laughs> this is a mm. secret you tell maybe only your closest friends and family, maybe your therapist, and that's it. And I'm guessing there will be some who watch the movie and wish he had gone ahead and just kept it to himself or at least handled it differently. Our Chicago colleague, Robert Daniels, wrote a really wonderful review of this film. We could spend our entire time here in this conversation just unpacking his argument. Suffice it to say, I think everybody should read it if you have any interest in this film at all, and we'll link to that review in our show notes. But I have to say, while it's pointed in its critique, it's also quite fair, and it doesn't overlook the ways this movie does interrogate itself. Robert doesn't think it goes quite far enough in that regard. At one point, he says that it lacks any notion resembling interest in aesthetically and narratively humanizing its injured party, the lone black character, Johnny. I didn't see it that way, Josh, at least narratively. But the larger point is a really interesting one to discuss and undeniably valid. When the point of view of the movie, which is also very much about the Jewish experience in America, survivor's guilt from the Holocaust, and it's so explicitly tied to the director slash main character's own experience, how do you avoid, in a way, repeating history and further marginalizing the already marginalized? Arguably, though, Johnny's story isn't really Gray's story to tell either. Just like I can't speak from Robert's perspective. From my perspective, Gray isn't just well-intentioned. In the actual execution, I never felt as if he was looking to let himself or anyone off the hook. While the world around Paul may want to move on from Johnny, we can't. I think it offers an honest reckoning with his past and privilege. It's a film that does want to provoke some tough questions, that wants to challenge us, not placate us or make us comfortable as viewers who may also be lucky enough to have had such privilege. And I think one of the ways that the movie manifests that is in its overall aesthetic approach. But I'm really curious where you're at with Gray after seeing this film and whether or not it shifted anything for you and whether or not this very issue that I'm talking about plays a role in that shift. Yeah, you got right to the crux of it. I have not read Robert's review. I'm very eager to do that, um, especially after what it sounds like our conversation is going to be. But let me back up. Um, I didn't necessarily want to start there, even though you could. Uh, I think it would be totally valid to make that the focus of uh, a conversation about this movie. But let me back up to talk about Gray. And it's interesting that this is perfect for us, right? I'm with you on you know where he's rated or considered. I agree properly rated, I would say. Totally with you on the you go into the theater idea. I think I would have put the number right around there as well in terms of other directors I would see before I would seek out one of his. And yet at the same time, I've had different films that have appealed to me more <laughs> compared to yours, right? I would probably put Lost City of Z at the very top for me. And something like The Yards, I think is incredibly strong as well. And yet, other films of his I've liked quite a bit. I do think he's become bolder in terms of the aesthetics in his last handful of movies. And going back to this Oscar question, I think you're absolutely right in that, uh, you know, this is these are stories that Oscar best picture winning movies usually have historical epics um, in the case of The Lost City of Z um, or closer, more 
contemporary in a way historical story like The Immigrant. These are all we've seen these types of movies win awards, but I think his films are more complicated than most of those who do go on to win those awards. Even Ad Astra, you know, we've seen the Oscars love these thoughtful space epics, yet uh, Ad Astra was maybe something a little bit different. I'm actually surprised that one didn't um, register more strongly with voters considering where we split on that is I think it became a little more conventional as it got to its ending. I would also say we're going to split a little bit more on how Armageddon time is conventional maybe isn't the wrong word, but safer. We'll go back to the terms you were using um, compared to some of those earlier films, especially in terms of what an Oscar voter might like. It's um, It also, and here we're kind of circling back to the story of Johnny, the character of Johnny and how he comes into play here. You know, it's, it's dancing along the, uh, tiptoeing here with white guilt and the Oscars are so guilty themselves of awarding movies that allow this catharsis of white guilt. Um, This is not Green Book. I'm not saying that at all, but it's tiptoeing in that territory. I think it's very well-intentioned how Gray is exploring this story, how it affected his stand-in, how it might relate to experiences he had as a person, how he's processing these through this story, but in a way that I do think is friendlier to Oscar voters. So that's all to say is I, I wouldn't be surprised if this does shift him a little bit forward in the mainstream acceptance and getting the sort of awards recognition that has eluded him so far. Doesn't mean it's a bad film. Again, I'm you know I'm recommending a gray film that I may have some quibbles about. I think another distinction that I want to talk about with you and see if you felt this way. I think it's set apart from his last three films in its aesthetic reticence in a lot of ways. I think of him, I've come to think of him as a filmmaker with grand flourishes in terms of the cinematography, in terms of using mise-en-scene. As a matter of fact, The Immigrant, which is maybe still to this day his best-reviewed movie, I found almost went too far, where the filmmaking craft was— Yeah, so much. It just kind of drowned the story. And then Lost City of Z, for me, again, was kind of a perfect balance of those things. At Astra, whatever quibbles I had was a gorgeous film and had, again, those aesthetic flourishes that did serve the story. I found Armageddon Time, and I don't think this works against it. I think it's probably the right choice for an intimate personal story to be muted. Uh, yeah. You do have cinematographer Darius Kanji working here. So it's not a matter of, you know, you've got a brilliant cinematographer, but the choice has been made to offer this as a memory that um, is a little sad, a little quiet. And I liked that about it, even though if we were ever to do sometime our top five gray scenes, we might not get a pick from Armageddon time. I still think that was the right choice for this story. Hmm. Yeah, I'm with you completely there. The most ostentatious moment with the camera or editing wise in this entire film is maybe a cut between three empty rooms Mm. that goes by pretty quickly. The ending, right? right? Yeah, near the end of the film. So I agree with you in terms of its overall muted palette, which is one of the reasons why, as I was saying, in terms of its overall aesthetic approach, I think it belies the idea that it's a little too safe or too cathartic at the end. I just don't feel like the movie is feel good enough to leave a certain segment of the population. Yeah, it's not walking feel good. Out. You're right yeah. about that. You know, walking out feeling like racism's been solved. Obviously the Correct. movie isn't isn't going there. But that absence of the nostalgic glow 
literally and figuratively here, is what was key for me as well, Josh. There is nothing like any conventional version of the 1980s we've seen before. This is absent all of those cliches. And if you threw out the technology at all, not that there's a ton of it, but just in terms of the TV, you threw out the cars that are being driven, you would think that this movie was maybe set in the 1950s or 60s, or honestly, more like The Immigrant, set in the 1920s or 1930s. This is such a far cry from, say, Radio Days, (laughs) which, of course, is a comedy where nostalgia is its entire reason for being. But Gray resists that so thoroughly in this film. And I do think that's notable because this is a trap a lot of art falls into that kind of glides by all the stuff that was terrible about a certain time period in a certain place because it really can't help but show what was beautiful about it all. I would describe Armageddon time as carefully constructed. We noted the cinematographer here, Darius Kanji, one of the real pros that we have, but it's very intentionally not pretty. And that visual tension, which I was with you on The Immigrant as well, It was lacking there, and here it's something that I think is very revealing. And again, it's the right choice. It's not the one that everyone has to make. I think you can look at something like Quaran's Roma and see that that was, ostentatious is not the right word, but much more extravagant in its filmmaking, yet for me was perfectly of a piece with the story that wanted to tell. Then you have something like Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which is... I thought drowning in that sort of nostalgia, even as it too is telling a harsh story, it didn't look that way. It didn't sound like that way or move that way. So we're in alignment here in terms of, you know, the aesthetic choices that were made. So let's get back to, you know, this idea and and you nailed it again, which it sounds like this is what Robert circled in on is this question of who has the right to tell what story. I do think it's the crucial question here. Mm -hmm. It's the most, it was the most fascinating one to me. As soon as I saw this narrative developing with Johnny, the classmate played by Jalen Webb thought, okay, let's see where this goes. How is it to your point? This is a different time just in the last couple of years, our understanding and our, the questions we're asking of these sorts of narratives are different for good reason. And so how is this going to, how is this going to go? And I'm not, I don't really think there are hard and fast rules here. I know that some people would say, you know, only a person from a particular background can tell stories about others from that background. I don't know that that's the case for me, Adam. I sometimes feel like, you know, a lot of times these proclamations are made when a project is announced. And I can understand the trepidation in some scenarios. Um, But for me, a lot of times you got to wait till you see what's on the screen and Mm -hmm. see how it's actually handled. And that helps you to decide then, you know, okay, was this the right filmmaker to tell this story? And obviously, Gray, when we're in that home, this multi-generational home, it's an interesting contrast. And maybe that's where for me, he almost set himself up to fail is when you know something so intimately like this home that he lived in and you can get the details right how the phone worked how they decided what to eat how you know ordering chinese moved in on the traditional jewish meal that they had and what that meant to the mother how when you get all that stuff right you're almost raising the bar for yourself to make sure if you're going to bring in another character even if it's another supporting a supporting character to do the same for that character and i don't know if there's any way he actually could have done that. So I will say I got increasingly uncomfortable in in the 
as the movie went on with this, while at the same time in the back of my head, I'm saying, but he is a supporting character, right? And in some ways, Johnny is serving a particular purpose in this narrative that any other supporting character would, and it's not fair to demand more from Gray. Mm -hmm. But these racial realities, it did add a crucial wrinkle. And as we got to see more of Johnny's world, but not quite enough, he did become something of a, there are two tropes at play here, right? We talk about the magical Negro in movies, the sacrificial Negro in movies, and where the story went, Johnny kind of became both of those things, both of these two tropes that have persisted across cinema history. Again, clearly not Gray's intention, but I do think that going back to this idea of the movie's moral consciousness being raised, Paul's moral consciousness being raised by the movie, it it also made Johnny ground zero for the film's white guilt. And that's where some of my, some of the discomfort for me came in. I can see that and understand that reaction. I think for me, the differences in movies that dwell in that domain and deal with those tropes. A lot of times, Josh, they are films that don't have anything else on their mind. They are dealing with race as a backdrop, and they use this character as a way, this secondary character, supporting character, as just a means towards some kind of epiphany or revelation for the main character. They and like in parachute film, in, you're saying. Yeah, and just, yeah, exactly. And And really, at its core, that's all the movie is, quote unquote, about. And I think Armageddon Time has enough directly connected but separate things on its mind that it all feels sort of of a piece. And that character to me never feels as if he is the only means to some kind of revelation for this character. It isn't as if at the end, just because of his experience with Johnny and his interactions with him, he is somehow fundamentally changed or better because of that mm -hmm. or because of that primarily i think that again there's too many other things swirling in this movie and you know i like the title i'm not overly familiar with the clash so i didn't get armageddon time as a reference to that though i did hear that somewhere else i just like the title in terms of what it evokes clearly the movie is playing with this idea of we're in the 1980s reagan's a backdrop there's fear in this family justifiably having gone through what they've gone through in their Jewish family, they see Reagan and kind of this warmongering and the threat of nuclear war. It's as if Armageddon might actually happen. The end of the world could be near again. They've, they've lived through it. Some of these characters, the Anthony Hopkins character, right? And that's been passed on that, that survivor's guilt, that fear. One of the more evocative, I've mentioned that the three empty rooms is maybe the most bravura moment in the film, but you also get that really evocative moment when Paul is going to bed and the words of his grandfather are lingering in his mind and he's kind of pulling the covers up over him because he feels almost this paranoia has kind of been transferred to him. You've got the change of school. You've got him wrestling with the fact that he feels this way to him about Johnny that is obvious and no different than anyone else, but everyone around him, including his parents, are either sending mixed signals or mm -hmm. defiantly negative signals. And even the things his parents say to him that are meant to be 
loving a father saying something to the effect that he can have it all and I want you to end up better than me, not the same as me. That's something that should be a sign of love and expression of love and affection, and it is, but also what a burden to bear, you know? And when you add to that, not only all the other things we've just talked about, but a moment earlier when the mother has said, you and your brother are my entire world, <laughs> the, the weight that's on this kid's shoulders isn't such, Josh, that I ever felt watching the movie I was supposed to feel is if he's got a tougher life than Johnny. Mm -hmm. It did just provide the context for his understanding of the world and how he comes out the other side of it with Johnny being a significant part of it, yeah. but not not the conduit to, to all the answers, not in any way magical. Yep. I think that's fair. And I think that speaks to the, you know, the, the complicated nature of this story. And I, I don't think it's meant for audiences to go out feeling better about themselves or patting themselves on the back. It probably means to challenge them to think about their own assumptions or maybe similar instances when they were growing up. And I think yeah. that's to its credit. I just, it's, you know, it's, it's just more of a, like a, uh, no, I don't. Maybe not, you know, and, yeah. and we talked about the, the aesthetic elements too. It's almost like what more than the narrative, more than what happens to Johnny it's things like the cinematography not capturing um, Johnny's skin as well as it captures Paul's, you know? And, and again, this is Darius Kanji. This is a, a supreme talent. But there are scenes where Jalen Webb, the actor playing Johnny, is is in the shadows and you can't fully see his his face. And it's when something like that happens, it's sort of like this, this gnawing discomfort I have. And then I get a scene like that. I'm thinking one in particular in the clubhouse in Paul's backyard. And it's just like, yeah, this is what I meant when I'm saying you got to see what's on the screen. When that happens, then it's like, yeah, maybe this wasn't the story, story to tell. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about the performances because Jalen Webb, I think is great. I think, yeah, you know, this young actor- they both are. Um, uh, as far as Webb goes, he's balancing something that's very difficult. This is a kid who's has the enthusiasm of youth. He gets excited about things, especially when their friendship is new and they start sharing. They talk about music and that, you know, that's all good stuff. There are good scenes with Johnny. I, I don't want to act like there are not. And I think Webb is crucial to that because what else is he balancing? And we see this part of his interior life too, which Gray does give attention to. He's balancing that with the anger of someone who's realizing the world stacked against him, mm -hmm. right? In a way that it is not for Paul. And so I think Webb is good. And yeah, as you were saying, you know, Banks Repetta here. I just love that this kid is a little snot. Right. <laughs> I like that Gray right. allows him to be a snot, uh, especially because he's, you know, essentially a stand in for himself. And, you know, but you see the intelligence working there too. You see the aspiration this kid has, but also the fact that he's going to give the, give the grownups in his, in his world, a lot of trouble. And so I thought it was a great, essentially, lead performance from this kid. Yeah, I agree with you. I never would have allowed that kid to pick up the phone and call the Chinese restaurant. Oh, come on now. I mean, no. I'm no hardliner. I'm no hardliner in my house, but you're watching that thinking, somebody please put your foot down. 
Armageddon Time opens in Chicago this weekend and is currently playing in limited release. It expands nationwide next weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, Adam and I have been busy moviegoers. It is that time of year. So we have a bunch of quick reviews when we come back. Wendell and Wild, Triangle of Sadness, and Jennifer Lawrence in Causeway. Stay with us. A lot of people won't get no supper tonight. A lot of people going to supper tonight. Cause the battle is getting hot. In this iration, it's Armageddon. A lot of people won't get no justice tonight. So a lot of people. I was dog. Being back here. You don't got love for this city. It's not the city. That's Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Tyree Henry in the trailer for Causeway from director Lila Neugebauer. Lawrence plays Lindsay, a soldier who returns home to New Orleans after suffering a traumatic brain injury in Afghanistan. She connects with Tyree Henry's James, a mechanic. Causeway comes to theaters and to Apple TV Plus this weekend. Adam, this is Neugebauer's feature debut. She was an acclaimed theater director before making the move to film. And so that's one of the reasons this movie is eligible for our Golden Brick Award. I want to hear more about what you thought of the film as a whole, but I also want to start with Lawrence. I mean, she did have a significant role in Adam McKay's Don't Look Up. That was about a year or so ago. Before that, I don't think we saw her in anything significant since 2017's Mother from Darren Aronofsky. You know, I'm a huge fan of Lawrence. I even liked her. Yes, I even liked her in Don't Look Up. So would you say it's a return to form for her here? I would say it's not only a return to form. If you're a Jennifer Lawrence fan like yourself, you might end up thinking this is one of her best performances. Okay. It's incredibly understated, like the movie itself. I'll talk about that here in just a second. But I was so glad to see her on screen. It, of course, helps if you're a director making your feature debut to have as formidable a talent as Jennifer Lawrence and to be able to do so much with really any material that she's given. But this is one of those performances that makes you realize just how talented she is and why she's a movie star. And, of course, you then pair her with someone as good as Brian Tyree Henry, and there really is no reason not to see Causeway. I think when you do see it, You might be a little bit surprised, no matter how much you enjoy it, that I am nominating it for a golden brick because it's definitely not as formally ambitious as most of our nominees. If anything, though, its audaciousness lies in its restraint. Causeway is about overcoming trauma and healing. Lawrence's character is recovering from injuries suffered in an ambush. She's got a troubled relationship with her well-meaning, but totally undependable mother, tough relationship with her estranged brother. Tyree Henry is reckoning with his own mistakes and regrets. So it would be reasonable to expect some big moments, some melodrama. I think there's a version of Causeway where it's absolutely the stereotype of a Sundance film, but it never succumbs. All of the revelations are small scale, but meaningful. And it demonstrates the stillness and self-control of its resolute 
main character and Lawrence herself as a performer. There's a scene in the movie where she recounts what did happen to her in Afghanistan. It's during an appointment with her doctor, played by Stephen Henderson, the great Stephen Henderson, and she is resistant to open up as she's been up to this point in the movie. Her instinct is to withhold and protect herself, and the camera just stays on her, and there's nothing robotic, Josh, about her retelling of what happened, but Lawrence doesn't try to evoke the terror of the situation either, and Neugebauer doesn't depict or insert any shots of the attack itself. It's just about this character, Lindsay, processing the situation now, in this moment, and what it means to her now. And it has an element of performance to it for her as a character because it's about control, and she doesn't want to let on to the guy who eventually has to sign off on her being redeployed that she's psychologically scarred by what happened to her. It's a movie that's set in New Orleans, but it doesn't have any of the signposts you usually get. You know, there's no parades. There's no mm, second sure. lines. I could see someone saying, well, why is it set in New Orleans at all? And for me, it's, again, it's subtle. There is a connection between her, let's say, exact role in Afghanistan in New Orleans. I'll leave it at that. But really more than anything, it's a city like Lindsay that can't separate itself from its suffering that is forever tied to its past and is engaged in a constant struggle to move forward. The setting in that regard made a ton of sense to me. And yeah, I mentioned Tyree Henry. You think about performers who don't overdo anything, but are always powerful and poignant mm -hmm. on screen. I mean, if we were going to do a top five list, we probably should do someday, which is just characters that we just want to hang out with, characters we want to spend time with, as you hear critics sometimes say. Tyree Henry, in really so many roles, but especially here in Causeway, might be number one, Josh. And he and Lawrence together are giving two of my favorite performances of the year. I think Causeway's a movie people should definitely catch up with and not overlook. I know it's available in some theaters, but as of this weekend, it's on Apple TV Plus as well. And was really completely off my radar. So I'm glad you did catch up with it and glad to hear that it's it's so strong, especially for Lawrence. I saw that on Apple TV Plus, Josh. And I also did a little Netflix viewing this weekend as we're talking here about trauma and reconciling the past and the present, though on a larger and more horrific scale. I really do want to talk about Descendant. It's a documentary that hit Netflix a few weeks ago. Another one, that really cannot be missed, especially as you're making your list of the best films of the year. This is a movie about the descendants of the survivors from the last slave ship that arrived in the United States, set around the Mobile, Alabama area. The ship was called the Clotilda, and it's long been rumored to be buried somewhere, to be in the water, and a wreckage that different groups have tried to find over the years, but maybe not to the extent of an expedition that it really requires. And it's always been lore in the area, though one of the things the movie gets into is that for about 100 years, from 1860 to 1960, you couldn't talk about this. People didn't talk about their own legacies as descendants of 
slaves or as slaves themselves because of the fear of repercussions and what might happen to them from the people who were directly involved in it and still very much in power in this area. The way my mother told me, Timothy Mayer, a local businessman, made a bet that after slavery was abolished, that he could still bring Africans into the country. He went and brought them back here and burned the ship to conceal the crime. It's slowly been erased, and as far as I can remember, it's never been in history books. The Mayer family lied to lead people to the wrong area so they wouldn't find the ship. How should I say this? I don't want the momentum of the story to just be focused on the ship. It's not all about that ship. Finding the Clotilda itself could be its own movie. The history of this town that's now called Africa Town could be its own movie. The story of the writer Nora Zeal Hurston and her book about the residents of Africa Town, which is a huge part of this film. It's called Barracoon. And the writing of that and the publishing of that after decades of it sitting in a vault somewhere, that could be its own movie. The continued exploitation of the black people of Africa Town today, and that struggle could be its own movie. The continued exploitation of the black people of Africa Town by the white descendants of the slave masters who brought those black descendants over from Africa. Again, that could be its own movie. The family, the slave owner that ultimately pulled this off, the Mayer family, very much still around. Lots of people named Mayer in this area still in prominent places and positions of power. They don't appear in the movie. Not shocking, Josh, but the notion of white people dealing with their guilt. And I know we just talked about Armageddon time. Here it is on another level where what's it like to wake up one day and fully understand and deal with the idea that your direct ancestors, just maybe a grandfather or a great grandfather away was responsible for bringing the last set of slaves over to this country. There's not only all of these threads, but just individually, we meet so many people in Descendant who could be the primary subjects of their own documentaries. And Margaret Brown, the director, definitely peels back the layers of all of their stories and makes them heard. And I think the construction is key. She lets the descendants tell their stories, their individual stories and this collective narrative. As a filmmaker, she isn't interjecting herself in any way. She's invisible as a filmmaker. She's a conduit for that narrative. She is very clear or very sensitive to, it seems to me, not coming off as the author of it. And many people address the camera there are interviews, and some are doing it while sitting down, but there are no talking heads in this movie, which I think is significant in that it isn't formal, it's not rigid, it's as if this is all active. This is not history being told, this is still in the process of being formed, and the story is still unfolding, so it's active, it's ongoing, we're seeing and hearing these characters in their spaces, in their community, as they're seeking clarity and they're seeking their own kind of catharsis from the wounds that they have dealt with their entire lives. I also think it's significant. I mentioned how finding the Clotilda itself could be its own doc. Well, in a lesser documentary, 
one that wasn't as committed to honoring its subjects and their stories, finding the ship would have been wrong for every ounce of suspense. And it probably would have been really effective, but it also would have been false. And that is not how Brown plays it at all. She plays it like the ship is a piece of the story, a really significant piece of the story, but not the whole story and really just the start of a new one. Also, to my previous point, it's not the descendants who find it. So not allowing those people to take on that narrative significance, I think is key. Descendant is a must-see. Yeah, I need to check this out. I know you said there's a number of pieces to the story and the Zora Neale Hurston book. I think Barracoon is just one piece of that, but I actually just yeah. finished her novel for the first time. I read Their Eyes Were Watching God. So mm. she, her work is in my head. And if that's an element of it, definitely, definitely I will check this out. So Descendant is currently playing on Netflix. Causeway, the Jennifer Lawrence film that is in select theaters and on Apple TV Plus. Causeway, a Golden Brick nominee. So if you want to find out more about our Golden Brick Award, including a list of all the current nominees, you can get that at filmspotting.net slash bricks. I know what you are, Cat. You're a hell maiden. But it has to be our secret. That's how I can protect you. Protect me from what? Your demons. Let's get to a movie you caught up with this weekend, Josh Wendell and Wild, directed by Henry Selleck, the genius stop-motion animator behind The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Coraline. Selleck collaborated with Jordan Peele on the story and script, which is about two demon brothers, voiced by Peele and Keegan-Michael Key, who enlist the aid of a teen to summon them to the land of the living. I'm reading these notes in front of me, Josh, and getting serious Beetlejuice vibes. <laughs> You're a Selleck fan. I assume you're also a Beetlejuice fan. I mean, oh, how can you not be a fan of Michael Keaton and Tim Burton? Tell me about your reaction to Wendell and Wild. Oh, I mean, mentioning Beetlejuice now and thinking about these two next to each other. I liked Wendell and Wild, but it's a far cry from Beetlejuice. I, I think it's also a far cry from a lot of Selleck's work, but he is the reason to see this. There is enough of that genius on display here. This is the thing about stop motion, right? When you have someone at this level of mastery of it, it almost doesn't matter what the story is. There's going to be something happening in every frame. There's going to be, uh, there's this residential, religious residential school that comes into play here. And the radiators in the dormitories, they, they kind of wriggle when they hiss, almost like a caterpillar. There's stuff like that. Wendell and Wilde's faces have a different animation style. Like uh, they're almost paper cut. So it looks like Kirigami or something like that. It, this is just incredible visually, which is what you would expect. Hearing that Jordan Peele was involved, I was very excited about that. We're both huge fans of his, but I've got to say, I think the screenplay, which he co-wrote with Selleck, based on an idea Selleck had many, many years ago, Peele, my senses, took most of the narrative. That's the real weak link here. There is so much going on in this thing. It is incredible. The characters and the subplots just keep piling on every 10 15 minutes roll by and you get another thing to keep track of. And it's just too much. You try to keep up. And honestly, it isn't until the movie is at its climax and you see them trying to weave all of this together. And you realize that it's narratively been off the rails for quite a while. So 
that's unfortunate. Again, the animation is stellar. And I do like Peel's involvement in the fact that you can see he's pushing for representation in these characters. There's almost every character is a character of color. And there's not a lot of that in the stop motion world. So that is good to see. This central character, Kat, this 13-year-old girl who's suffered trauma at the beginning and gets this chance to kind of rebuild her life, even though she's this rebellious, troublemaking 13-year-old at this point. She's a great character, voiced by Lyric Ross, who gives a good vocal performance. And again, the design of the character. She has her hair is emerald and she has these two poofs on either side. Um, and she has a great attitude. That's all good stuff, but there's so much more involving her parents, local politics. There's a there's a long thread about a private prison needing to be built and how the members of the city council are going to vote on this. I mean, this thing just gets so overly complicated. It is unfortunate, but I'm still going to recommend it for the quality of that animation. If you're a stop motion fan, you still don't want to miss it. Like Descendant, Wendell and Wild is currently available on Netflix. Two more from me, Josh, before we get to another one that we both saw. Two music documentaries that I did want to recommend here on the show. The first one is Meet Me in the Bathroom, adapted from Lizzie Goodman's best-selling book of the same name. It is the story of bands like The Strokes and LCD Sound System and Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Interpol, TV on the radio, The Moldy Peaches, a few others who get some attention in the doc. And especially early, obviously, as we see these bands coming together and the groups really forming and just starting to take off. You get this sense that there's just something kind of in the air at the time. Something is happening, something great. There's a certain spirit. And then, you know, 9-11 happens, Josh, not too long after this scene really takes off. Drugs and addiction end up afflicting a lot of the members of these groups. But as we're talking here about some of these titles where the form really fits its content. The directors, Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern, render this chronicle of the early 2000s New York music scene in a dreamy, expectant haze tinged with an inescapable fatalism. It's a vibe, and it's sometimes a really exciting one and sometimes one that gives you a little bit of that sense of melancholy, Josh, but again, just seems so appropriate for the music and all of these key players. And these bands are bands that obviously I'm familiar with by name who didn't hear the strokes on the radio at the time, but I didn't come to LCD sound system until shut up and play the hits when they were disbanding. And I never listened to Interpol or the yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a lot of new information for me and a lot of new appreciation for these artists. I recommend meet me in the bathroom. I also recommend Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues, which is a documentary from director Sasha Jenkins that came to Apple TV Plus this past weekend. Louis Armstrong, it turns out, was one of these guys who was his own archivist. He, in his home that he lived in for decades, had these reel-to-reel tape machines, and he kept his own scrapbooks really meticulously and diligently. So Jenkins had a wealth of material to draw on, and I think... The experience a lot of people may have with this film is the one I had, and it's a much smaller version of the experience 
Wynton Marsalis had, who is featured in the documentary. And the reason I say it's smaller is because how could we have the perspective Wynton Marsalis has? He's not only from New Orleans, where Louis Armstrong, of course, became so famous and was born. He's also a jazz musician, a trumpet playing jazz musician. And as a black man, he's of a generation, the next generation that kind of rejected Armstrong. His playing, his playing style, his performing style, most of all, he talks about it, that he and all of his friends saw Armstrong as this antiquated throwback, someone with all that grinning. He was Tommen, mm. as Marsalis says, and that was something that they really resisted. And he comes around. He talks about the moment where his father says to him, yeah, but have you really ever listened to the music? And he gets out one of the albums. And this is Wynton Marsalis, and he realizes, I can't really play this solo. This is incredible. And that's that's an easy one. Obviously, the personal one and where he falls is sort of this lightning rod in terms of the civil rights movement and his advocacy or perceived lack of advocacy later in his life. That is something that's a little bit more difficult to come around to. But people like Marsalis, Ossie Davis is featured some footage of him talking about his experience with Louis Armstrong and his transformation, at least in terms of how he viewed him. It's not simple. It's not as if they wake up one day and realize they were wrong. It's just so much more complex than that. And their eyes are open to the complexity of the life that Armstrong lived and the circumstances that he had to live through. He was trying to use his music to reform and lead the country closer to his higher ideals. Arkansas had decided to make its own laws on the subject of integration. Louis said Ike and the government could go to hell. Everybody was astonished, but privately, he expressed stuff like that all his life. My only sin All over the world Is in my skin He had the respect and the love of millions. And what did I do? What more can any man ask for? To be so black and blue. So it's a documentary that joyfully but soberly investigates Armstrong's immense artistry and complicated legacy. I do also recommend Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues, which, as I said, available now on Apple TV Plus, just came out this past weekend. October 28th on that platform, also open now in select cities. I know you can see it at the Landmark here in Chicago. Well, next week, Adam, after all those reviews, as of right now, it looks like we'll just have one review next week, but it should be a good conversation. It's going to be about the film After Sun, and then we're going to do a top five list, Father Daughter Movies. In After Sun, it's the recollections of a grown woman of a vacation she took as an 11-year-old with her father to Turkey. So a nice pairing of theme and movie there. We're going to get into that as always. Please send any suggestions you might have for father-daughter movies to feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll also have results from the current Film Spotting poll, which asks, what film released between 2012 and 2022 should make Sight and Sound's 100 Greatest Films of All Time list. So what's the most recent title that deserves a spot on that list? We gave a couple of options, and it's looking like, so far, 
people are voting for Parasite, which is understandable, hugely popular, great film. We'll see if it does end up taking the poll. You can vote in that poll. It's still live. Also, please do leave a comment. Do all of that at filmspotting.net. We're so giving on this show, Josh. We're just giving away reviews left and right. And we've got tickets. We've got Blu-rays for our Chicago area listeners. We've got some passes for a preview screening of She Said from director Maria Schrader. It stars Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan and documents the research and writing of the New York Times stories that helped launch the Me Too movement and shattered decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood. The movie opens wide on November 18th. These passes are for a screening on Tuesday, November 15th at the River East here in Chicago, a screening we'd both love to be at, but we're going to be recording film spotting. Yes, that's the plan. So we will not be able to see, she said, at that time. If you are available, you're not recording your own podcast that night, you can win free passes by going to gofobo.com slash filmspottingshe. That's G-O-F-O-B-O dot com slash filmspottingshe. That's one word. And if you missed it, we'll put that link in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We've got another giveaway, Adam. This one open to everyone, not just Chicago listeners. We have five Blu-ray copies of Top Gun Maverick to give away. Top Gun Maverick is now on 4K UHD. Tom Cruise, of course, in this action-packed epic, which at least one critic called one of the greatest movies ever made. I don't think that was you, however, Adam. In a bizarre twist of the universe, I happen to like Maverick a little better than you, I think. So no chance of Adam stealing one of these five copies we have to give away. This 4K UHD disc has over 80 minutes of behind-the-scenes bonus content. It's available at participating retailers, also available on digital. Top Gun Maverick is rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Now, if you want to have a chance, get a shot at one of those five Blu-rays. All you have to do is send us a note. Send it to feedback at filmspotting.net in the subject line, Top Gun. And here's what we want to know in the body. Tell us your pick for Tom Cruise's best decade. If you want to go crazy, you could rank them, but really we want to know what's your pick for Cruz's best decade. I don't know, Adam, looking at the options here, the titles Sam highlighted for each decade, wow. if there's an obvious answer for you, the eighties, you've got risky business, Top Gun, Rain Man, Color of Money, born on the 4th of July. Not bad. Nineties, you're looking at a few good men. Mission Impossible kicked off then. Jerry Maguire, Eyes Wide Shut, and a little movie called Magnolia. Let's look at the aughts here. Minority Report. I believe I just grabbed that one. Snatched Minority Report. Spoilers. In our Spielberg draft for film and right. family members. Also in the aughts, Cruz did Collateral, Mission Impossible 2 and 3, and a great comic turn in Tropic Thunder. If you move ahead to the 10s, you've got Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and Rogue Nation, and Fallout. A lot of impossible missions for him in that decade, plus edge of tomorrow so far in the 20s is it just maverick just top gun maverick maybe that's all he needs to win maybe that is his best decade what do you think adam where are you going well what i think is i'm just looking at this for the first time i'm doing the josh larson just instant reaction i love it thing yeah and my instant reaction is why are we wasting this on a contest when we should be power ranking the cruise decades. Okay, let's this should save be its it own top five. Save I it. I think we Don't. should save it. I do think there's 
a clear answer insofar as it comes down to one decade versus another. Okay. I think there are two that are in contention. Can I give, but, can I guess what you think those are? Sure. 80s and 90s. Yeah. Okay. It's the 80s and 90s for sure. We'll give but, this some more thought and, and get back to this scintillating idea. I hope so. Tell us what you think, though. We'll pick five winners at random to get you that Top Gun Maverick Blu-ray feedback at filmspotting.net. We feel the need to do a live show, Josh. Not the need for speed. This will be a very laid back affair, I'm sure. (laughs) But we are excited to go to Brooklyn. I don't think you could accuse any of our live shows of speed. No, no. (laughs) Saturday, January 14th. Yes, it's two months away. But no time like the present to plan. We will be at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. 8 p.m. is the showtime. We are bringing back our rap party, our favorite movie moments of the year in cinema. So favorite opening scene, funniest scene, most moving moment, our favorite music moment, and our scene of the year. And it won't be just us. We have special guests. Dana Stevens, Griffin Newman from Blank Check, Allison Wilmore, Matt Singer, They will be there and will partake in the fun, including the VIP hour beforehand. Tickets are available right now. Go to filmspotting.net or you can go to filmspotting.net slash events and get more info and buy tickets. You can get general admission or you could get one of those VIP tickets to hang out with us. Have a drink before the show. What a lineup. I can't wait. We've done the wrap party, you know, the last couple of years in our sad home studios previous to that. It was always live. It was always before an audience with special guests. It's going to be fantastic to get to do that again with that lineup. I cannot, cannot wait. It will be great. And it will be a great experience for everyone in attendance, assuming none of them have recently gone to a live show of How Did This Get Made? Yeah, that was, well, that was pretty raucous, (laughs) wasn't it? We went with our wives this past Sunday night and watching that trio June Diane Raphael and of course Jason Manzukis and Paul Shear and their personalities and the sheer force of those personalities on stage in front of a sold out Chicago theater crowd. That was not something. And no, it's not a small venue. venue. It is significantly bigger than the Bell House. So I'm just a little nervous now about whether or not we are up to the task, Josh. Well, just. They're comedians, Adam. They're working in a whole different realm. <laughs> we cannot compare. But I do, I did mean to ask you, I think Jason Matsukas at one point said something about how they were talking about Morbius. That was the, the film. That was the movie. Then, so good. And I think he said something about how, well, when I just put it on this afternoon. So, so do you think he's, I do believe this is probably his life. He's just rolling out of bed thinking, oh, I got the Chicago theater tonight. What? Oh, we're talking about Morbius. Okay. I guess, I guess I should watch Morbius. And he's like, okay, I'm good to go. Do you think that's the truth? I had, I had the same thought as you, Josh, when he said that. Cause we're both anal retentive preparers. I know exactly. And it was in the context of them talking about whether or not you watch something on a faster speed or not. Correct. But then over the course of the night, He did talk about Morbius with enough humor, but with enough clarity that it made me think the earlier in the day watch was probably a rewatch. I hope so. I think he had to have watched it before. I just hope so. I mean, otherwise, we might as well pack it in. I agree. (laughs) All right. Let's tell you what's going on with our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. This week, it's part one 
of their conduct unbecoming pairing. So they're going to put together Todd Field's Tar, the great Tar. We are both big fans of Tar with Stephen Freer's Dangerous Liaisons, which I know I didn't see when it came out in 1988, Adam. Way too naughty for me then with uh, John Malkovich, Michelle Pfeiffer, Glenn Close, Keanu Reeves. Wait a minute. Keanu Reeves is in that? Is he? Totally forgot that. So I saw it sometime after 88, but obviously not recently. I thought it it might be too naughty for you still, Josh. (laughs) I've never seen it. I think it's a at huge some time I took on me. the naughtiness, Adam, okay. but, but, but maybe not if I don't remember that Reeves is in it. So new for you, you're going to have to watch before you listen to this pairing of the next picture show. Your hosts there are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. This should be what you're looking for, Lieutenant. Shipping and employment records for Pier 32. Thank you. I've heard police work is dangerous. It is. That's why I carry a big gun. Aren't you afraid it might go off accidentally? I used to have that problem. And what did you do about it? I just think about baseball. Hey, that's a honey of an ankle bracelet you have there. Oh, did it slip down there again? That was Priscilla Presley and Leslie Nielsen in 1988. Hey, same year as Dangerous Liaisons. Okay. The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad, written by Jerry and David Zucker, Jim Abrahams, and Robert K. Weiss, directed by David Zucker. A couple of weeks back, along with that massacre, Adam and I shared our top five cops in love, along with a review of Park Chanuk's decision to leave. So why that scene from Naked Gun? Jeff Clark from Carborough, North Carolina, wrote in Josh, and he does have one of my favorite Naked Gun-esque bits when he enters Massacre Theater. He writes, Jeff Clark, pronounced like Jeff Clark. Good one, he Jeff. says, so very many quotable lines from The Naked Gun. Detective Lieutenant Sergeant Frank Drebin falls for Jane Spencer, not realizing that she has been brainwashed into being an assassin until she threatens to kill him in the film's conclusion. Very similar to the movie Decision to Leave that you were reviewing, except for the absence of a marching band marching over the antagonist at the end. <laughs> that's that's the difference. Yep. All right. Josh Ashen Miller from L.A. pulled out the notepad for this one. The obvious connection was your top five cops in love. In The Naked Gun, Lieutenant Frank Drebin falls in love with Jane Spencer. A less obvious connection is to your top five movie queens from a few weeks ago in memory of Queen Elizabeth II, who was recently fictionalized in 2021 Spencer, which is also the last name of Lieutenant Frank Drebin's beloved Jane Spencer, played by Priscilla Presley, an American royal. Well done. Okay. Whatever you say, Josh, he goes on. A stretch to the breaking point connection, oh, there's more, is to last week's mention of Point Break's surfing bank robbers or bank robbing surfers. In a memorable naked gun montage, Frank and Jane are holding hands and frolicking in the surf. Then they manage to clothesline another pair of lovers who are frolicking in the other direction. A great visual gag. Good work, Josh. Here finally is Sean from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That is the naked gun from the files of Police Squad. You should only accept answers that use the full title. Otherwise, the answer is wrong. The truth hurts. Not as much as landing on a bicycle with the seat missing, but it hurts. <laughs> I agree with Sean, by the way. I, I hope we filtered submissions that way. Eh, I might have been a little more lenient, Josh. Why don't you reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner? 
Our winner is Mike Peterson from Richmond, Virginia. Congratulations, Mike. Email feedback at filmspotting.net with your address, your preferred shirt size, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. Moving on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. We're going to eliminate two words from your first line, Josh, presumably because they might give it away, or so Sam, our producer, thinks, though I would never in a million years get this scene even with those two words. We're also going to change a name later. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's a little obscure. There's a direct connection to this week's show, obviously, but... I would be okay leaving those words in. I don't know. Let's let me be surprised. Let me be pleasantly surprised by listeners who are able to pick this up without those hints. I have a question okay. for you though. You you chose mm-hmm. which of the two parts you wanted. I what sort of accent are you going to try to do? I just want to know in advance. I don't know. I'm going to see what magic comes out when the scene starts. Oh boy. That makes me think of our triangle I have sadness no, review when you yeah, say something like that. I have like no that. plan. I have no plan here, Josh. It's Massacre Theater. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm just going to listen and feed off you. I'm going to act. Okay. I'm going to try to get into a, of the appropriate vocal register without injuring myself. Yeah. I don't think you can do this. I don't know how you're going to pull this off. I've never heard you go up seven octaves like this before. Let's do it. Okay. You started off and action. You were in my window. Mm hmm. You were my first friend. I mean, since I went to live with my aunts, they hated me. Shh, do not think of them now. But what if they find us? What if we don't make it to New York? I'll die if I have to go back to the way I was. They can't make me. Nobody can make you do anything, Charlie, if you do not let them. You are a brave boy. Now to sleep. You've had a very tired-making day. (laughs) <laughs> and seed. <laughs> that, that was a wonderful um, version of Bela Lugosi's effeminate cousin. I, I think you nailed it. That is exactly what I was going that, for. That was the and, inspiration. And well done. I think you should do the rest of the show in that voice. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 14th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce them in a couple of weeks. No colons this time. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. It came out like a month ago. We're just finally getting around to it. You heard a little bit from the trailer for the Palm Door winning Triangle of Sadness from two-time Palm Door winning Swedish director Ruben Oslin. He won the top prize in 2017 for The Square. Triangle of Sadness takes place on a luxury yacht until it doesn't. This Eat the Rich satire obviously played very well at Cannes, Josh. How did it play for you? Well, <laughs> similar to our Banshees of Inisherin review, where I said, because I was sitting next to you, I couldn't deny that I didn't enjoy it as well as I, I did, which I wouldn't want to deny. I happened to see this. Debbie and I went with uh, Lister Carl Bjorkman was in town. 
with his lovely wife, Esther. They were at the Music Boxes Horror Festival going on this weekend. And we, it's okay. I was, I was busy. I was washing my hair. So. You were out of town. Don't act mm. like that. You were out okay. of town. We, <laughs> we decided to catch Triangle of Sadness together. So he knows that during the scene... Which, you know, this has been out for a while. So I think most listeners probably, we won't spoil it, but there's a captain's dinner on this luxury cruise about midway through the film where things just get a little icky. And it was a blast to watch in a theater. It was a blast to, you know, have people around you reacting with that sort of disgust and disbelief. And yes, laughing. I think it's, I thought it was very funny, even though the joke is incredibly obvious that all these rich people are getting what's coming to them. I loved how it just kept pushing, you know, they just kept serving them the food. Everyone wanted to pretend what was happening was not happening, right? It's this, it's the protection of the bubble. It's this obscenely comic demonstration of how these people will protect their bubble of privilege and wealth at all costs, even though everything obvious around them is telling them something else. The music keeps playing the automatic piano. And then the punchline when when he would cut to the galleys below, the hallways below, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden like a cleaning cart, because the ship was tilting so much, would come flying into the into the hall, into the screen. I gotta admit, I love that scene. Otherwise, eh. I think this, for a film that has three separate distinct title sections and narrative pieces, mm-hmm. it felt really formless to me. Like it was meandering around. Yeah. Um, it ostensibly has this main couple as the character played by Charlie Dean and Harris Dickinson, the, these models who are kind of dating out of convenience. She's an influencer. Um, and that's how they get on this yacht by the middle section. They're basically there for free. So I guess it's about them. But they fade to the background during the yacht sequence pretty much. And then the third section where some of the people from the yacht find themselves stranded on this island, they come a little bit more to the forefront, but not to any distinct purpose that I felt. I mean, it especially falls flat, Adam, if you think about a couple of years ago, we did a Luis Bunuel marathon, right? Right. And so, of course, you think of with that dining scene, discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. You can't help. But think about it. Right. The dinner party that never happens. Mm -hmm. But I was also glad that we fit in a less known Bunuel film, Death in the Garden, 1956, where you have these refugees lost in this South American jungle. They try to recreate a posh society when they come across this crashed luxury plane. So you have a couple of touchstones here that Ostland, I'm sure, is well aware of. But the problem for me is that if you think about them in comparison, you know, Bunuel, those movies were very wry. They had, they had a bit of a, you know, and I just said how much I was laughing, but a bit of a sense of a humor throughout that I think is missing from a lot of this movie, from a lot of Triangle of Sadness, at least that I could detect outside of that central sequence. It almost felt too controlled and vice-like, which can be a tool for black comedy. But when your joke is, again, this obvious, that it's pretty much from the start going to be a broadside against the upper percent. When it's this pitiless and this vice-like, it can be airless in a way that is not as funny as so much of Bunuel is, at least at least for me. But maybe, you know, maybe I'm not catching on to its vibe the way the con audience did. I don't know. Well, clearly not. And I saw it with it sounds like not only a smaller crowd than you, but a less raucous crowd than you. I could see the music box audience particularly enjoying 
a moment. Well, this was like actually that. it was actually at Siskel. So okay, yeah. Well, you obviously had a crowd that was into it, and I saw it at Film Scene, great theater venue in Iowa City, where Sam and I talked about adaptations at a film festival there a few weekends back. There was maybe. It was a Sunday night. There were maybe Josh 20 or 25 people there. And there was a lot of silence during that part. I don't know if we were all just more serious than really? your Cisco crowd, but none of us really reacted to that moment. I think, well, Not even any I can only speak for, no, no, I can only speak for myself. There was kind of a blase reaction to the whole affair. And at that point, there wasn't going to be anything that really redeemed it. How did a satire... I hate this word. It's too strong of a word for how I feel about this film, but it's still appropriate. How did a satire this smug win the top prize it can? And I know that sounds just like a snarky shot, but I don't mean just rhetorically speaking, like how did a movie that's not that great win the grand prize? I mean, how were the jurors so impressed with something that seems to me, Josh, so on the nose and toothless? Like even if you even if you appreciate it and right. find it find it generally amusing, there's nothing provocative about it. No, and, and the only thing I can think, Adam, is it goes back to that theatrical experience. And I don't, you know, can for both of us on the uh, cinephile bucket list. We haven't been there. We don't know how it works. But if the jurors are experiencing it in a full audience, that and really our theater was not that packed. But I think it was just again a group of us together, kind of feeding off each other and a couple other people around. If that was in a packed auditorium, I can only imagine that you come out of that experience thinking what you saw had more behind it than there really was strictly based on the visceral experience. That actually makes sense to me. Again, I don't know if that's how they vote. If they're, you know, if the jury is screening it privately and having more of an experience like you did. Yeah. Hard to imagine that it would have gotten this acclaim. Here's my theory that I just came up with right now and is totally stupid. We've talked multiple times on this episode about white guilt. How about rich guilt? Probably the can audience watching this, they're all wearing their tuxes and the jewelry that cost them a million dollars, and they're laughing out of a slight feeling of discomfort and maybe their own shame that they're seeing themselves up on screen. We're in on the joke. Now, we're never going to get to can adam i don't i don't have a tux let alone the millions of dollars of jewelry you need apparently yeah Yeah. there there are just no there are no surprises here there's scarcely a gag or a scenario that isn't telegraphed and obvious and yet it's seemingly just as satisfied with its own cleverness as its targets are with their over pampered empty lives i can think of one scene one moment josh that worked for me and that isn't to say i didn't occasionally chuckle at the film but One moment that counters what I'm saying, and I just wish there were more of them in the movie, is one after the whole fiasco that you were describing. And I don't remember who it is. It's exactly coming upon the poor, distressed, rich people on the boat who have been through hell. But they're shining lights in their faces on the boat. And very clearly, they're meant to suggest refugees. It's as if these people who now maybe only ever maybe donate money to causes like that, right, are now actually in the position, the exact same position of being people who might have gone through that type of terror and who actually do need to be rescued. They are in such a godforsaken state in that moment 
that their scenarios are identical to the very type of people that they have done everything possible in their lives to avoid ever being like. And it's all done just with the camera and we get a couple of glimpses of it and we process it as viewers and we move on. And that's one of those few moments, Josh, in the film that doesn't otherwise feel like it's completely on the nose. Well, and to your point, you know, in terms of redundancy, then the third section essentially repeats that by stranding right. them as if they were refugees on on the island. I do want to, you know, highlight a couple things that worked for me because overall, I would say to people, I'm a little bit higher than you. I would say check it out. Check it out for that central sequence, the experience of it. Again, maybe not by yourself, but I do also think that Harris Dickinson, who plays the male half of this model couple. I liked him too. Yeah. He's, you I know did. what the distinction for me is amidst all of this, you know, these easy targets and the outrageous, you know, gross humor going on. I thought he brought some genuine vulnerability. And of course he's a little bit apart from these, you know, top percenters, right? He's, he's kind of there as a freeloader in a way. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, he is our eyes and ears, but I think he also tapped into Again, that vulnerability, he, I didn't recognize him while I was watching it, but looking up afterwards, he was in the film a couple of years ago, a smaller film, Beach Rats, the central figure where he was quite good. So I did appreciate that performance. And going back to the yacht whole section, Woody Harrelson as the ship's captain, it's just, you know, brilliant bit of casting <laughs> and the way he, the Cheshire cat grin. And I know as soon as I say that, everyone can picture the expression yeah. on Woody Harrelson's face, the way he wears that while everything is just going to pieces around him at the captain's dinner, honestly, for me, worth the price of admission. So not Palm d'Or deserving, maybe not among the best of the year, but, you know, perhaps, especially if you are a fan of Oslin's Force Majeure, which we both are a far better film, but you still want to keep track of his work. I would say that. Triangle of Sadness is worth a look. Triangle of Sadness is still playing in limited release, so you can catch it in theaters. And I think that's the only place you can catch it currently. If you see it or have seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting and I'm at Larson on Film. At Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which looks ahead to the release of Sight and Sound Magazine's Once Per Decade 100 Greatest Films of All Time list. This is what we're asking. What film released between 2012 and 2022 should make the new Sight and Sound list? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. Filmspotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. All of that is at filmspottingfamily.com. While we're on the subject of the Film Spotting family, you referenced earlier Minority Report and the Spielberg draft that we did. If you are a family member, if you are in the bonus tier or the family plus or advisory board you get an extra show every month sam the producer came on we did a spielberg draft snake draft josh is what we call it i know you and sam are still mystified by the whole I process i think i got it now <laughs> but 
You had the first pick, followed by Sam, then me, and we each picked five Spielberg films. We posted those on a page exclusively for the Film Spotting family. We asked them to vote who won the Spielberg draft. I have to say, I thought I had a chance, but looking over your list too, it did occur to me that it's a really solid list and I could see you crushing me in yet another draft here on the show. Are you curious what the results are right now? Um, yes, but first I will say, I think we have two distinct lists. I think we do. We offer listeners, poor Sam. I mean, I mean, we're not, we're not even <laughs> yeah, thinking about Sam, but sorry. Again, Temple of Doom. Actually, I got a call out just before we started recording this tweet uh-huh. about this. This is from Andrew Howell at Andrew H 1859. I heard the ice in Sam's drink. That explains his last pick. <laughs> <laughs> Team Adam, there's a vote for you. And his vicious snake strategy, Jaws, my first pick, was the right tough first pick. So yeah, that's yeah. why we're kind of discounting Sam. But all that to be said, I do think we offer distinct picks. We have very different lineups. Where are we at? How's the voting going? It's still early. The show was published less than 24 hours ago. But in early returns, Sam, he's not doing too badly. He's in last place, though, with 25% of the vote. Okay. It is you, Josh, just ahead of him with 30% of the vote. That leaves me right now with 45. I am currently in the lead, but, you know, it could change. Snake draft. Snake draft. Snake draft. Gotcha. On digital this weekend, you can see Weird, the Al Yankovic story. That stars Daniel Radcliffe. It's on the Roku channel and recommended by me earlier in the show. You can see Causeway on Apple TV+. And here in Chicago and select cities and then opening wide next weekend, you can see Armageddon time discussed by us earlier in the show and recommended by both of us next week here on film spotting a movie. I know you've seen and already reviewed Josh. I can't wait to finally see one of the movies. It seems to be one of the most acclaimed of the year. It's called after sun. It's a new one from a 24 and tying in with that. We're going to share our top five father daughter screen duos. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.